Yeah, so I think one one skill, one sort of meta skill that I think very few people talk about but is actually unbelievably important is learning how to get things done. Hello everyone and welcome to the Investing City podcast where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. In this episode of the Investing City podcast, we are happy to speak with Ryan Delk. Ryan is the COO, the Chief Operating Officer of Omni. It's basically Uber, but for stuff. So if you think about it, they work with retailers to provide them an outsource for extra inventory, and they allow consumers to rent that extra inventory. So you can kind of think of it as the access economy. Rather than buying things, you can just actually access or rent them whenever you need. So in our conversation, we talk a lot about Ryan's characteristics for management and how he runs operations at Omni. It's a really great conversation and Ryan has a lot of wisdom to share. So I hope you enjoy this one. Can you just elaborate a little bit on your background? So I I was originally, I've always been interested in uh, just kind of ways to create things to make money and, uh, you know, creating little small businesses. And so growing up, I was always tinkering with different ideas and you know, started the classic like lawn mowing company and um, then started selling things on Craigslist. And uh, I would flip iPhones when I was in high school and buy buy phones with shattered screens, replace them and then sell them. And so I'd always kind of been interested in like small businesses and how to start start your own company and things like that. And uh, when I got to college, I, I sort of thought that the best path uh, was to get really, really good at like finance and go work on like Wall Street and, um, you know, study business and learn that whole world and then go start my own company. And I realized pretty quickly after I did an internship after my freshman year um, at a bank that that wasn't that wasn't the path for me. And so uh, the next summer, actually, I ended up going to Nairobi, Kenya to work with a uh, startup incubator there. And I just had kind of reached out to this person that we had some mutual friends uh, who ran it. We ended up kind of hitting it off. And he said, hey, why don't you come out here for the summer? Um, And you can just kind of help me with random things, kind of intern with me. And uh, it was a guy by the name of Eric Hersman. And uh, I ended up learning a tremendous amount that summer. But the thing I learned, I think, the most was that, um, you know, in the sort of startup tech world, even though I was in Nairobi, um, there's an incredible tech scene there. And it's really, really vibrant. And I learned that really, like, you're judged, uh, you know, based on the impact and the output that you have uh, with these companies. So I was working with these startups in Nairobi, uh, was helping to raise a venture fund called the Savannah Fund um, that that I worked with for a little while that um, was based in sort of investing in sub-Saharan African tech companies. Um, and I ended up meeting a bunch of really incredible people, a lot of people actually from San Francisco that, uh, you know, were were basically coming through Nairobi to, to visit the tech scene or to meet people. And I think that the biggest takeaway that summer was that uh, sort of in the tech startup world, this is really my first exposure to it, that, you know, there wasn't a lot of like hierarchy and sort of, um, you know, you didn't have to like, or, you know, earn your time and sort of go through these ranks that were somewhat bureaucratic and uh, in some ways, like not correlated to actual value you're creating, you're really judged based on the value you create. And so uh, I went back to school for for two semesters, uh, and then ended up dropping out and coming out uh, coming out to San Francisco. And really, with I think the thing that that pulled me here, right. and that the thing that that I continue to love uh, about this industry is just that really smart people can come in and do great work uh, and quickly have a huge impact. Um, and you know, you're you're judged by that impact that you have, and and sort of everything else kind of falls away, which I think is a really efficient way to build organizations, but also gives it sort of levels the playing field for people, um, you know, to have to have an impact at these companies. And, um, you know, that was sort of the the philosophical thing uh, that pulled me out here. I want to backtrack on one thing you said. So I didn't realize that Nairobi has a robust tech scene. Do you know kind of the history and how that came to be? Uh, yeah, it's actually it's an unbelievable city. So um, it's it's a huge city and it's very, very underrated, I think, on like a global scale. 
And um, there's a there's an amazing tech scene there. There's a sort of co-working space incubator called the iHub um, that was started by Eric Hersman that has thousands and thousands of members, most of which who are engineers, designers, founders, product managers, um, and just unbelievably talented. There's several amazing technical universities there. That, so there's really, really incredible technical talent. And then there's also this, in, in Kenya and in a lot of sub-Saharan Africa, there's basically the, the like so basically like desktop computers were kind of like skipped over so mobile phones were were sort of like prolific and, and every single person had them actually like at a faster adoption rate i think in some areas than like in the us and so everyone sort of thinks in a mobile first way. Um, and there's all these interesting anecdotes about ways that sort of like mobile money and different things were hacked onto like cell phone networks and different things. And I think one of the most amazing things is that you have uh, sort of entrepreneurs that in some ways think uh, we're thinking kind of like mobile first before, you know, entrepreneurs in the US and Europe were thinking on those terms. And so there's a lot of what we were seeing was a lot of these amazing companies that were coming up from these founders that were thinking uh, of ways to do things on phones uh, or ways to accomplish tasks, things like, you know, everything from like farming to micro loans to finance to accounting, uh, all from from phones, you know, before a lot of even even US entrepreneurs were thinking about that. And so, um, yeah, there's an amazing, uh, amazing entrepreneurship scene there. And I think, you know, it, it has kind of the recipe with like really great universities, uh, really great talent, and a lot of people investing in the ecosystem to be kind of a global player in the tech world, especially over the next 10, 20 years. Wow, that's fascinating. So how did your friend Eric Hersman get connected over in Nairobi? He actually grew up there, grew up in Africa. And so he um, he kind of, you know, that that's his home. And so um, and he's founded a couple of tech companies. And so he he just kind of became well connected there um, and then is really kind of like a router uh, and, and, you know, a bit of a hub for um, a lot of the relationships there. And and so uh, he's he's building companies in Nairobi. He's investing in in the ecosystem there and then creating things like the iHub to sort of facilitate a broader community, which have had really, really incredible impacts. So you mentioned that in college you were interested in studying finance and then you had this experience in Nairobi and you just couldn't get enough of the tech scene. So you drop out and I feel like there's kind of this, maybe it's a misconception, but correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of people think you you need technical skills in order to be in a startup. And I think there's a degree of truth in that, but just tell us about your experience with maybe being I mean, I'm not sure if you were technical to begin with, but just tell us about that kind of experience with jumping off into startup land. That's a great question. So I think there definitely there definitely is a lot of leverage to be had and, and to be created by being technical. And um, startups in general, I think the best startups find a lot of leverage from technology. So I think you're definitely at an advantage, you know, if you learn to code. I think that I think you have the, the best advantage, obviously, if you know how to code and you're, and you're a great engineer. Second to that, though, I think is understanding sort of um, engineering principles or how you know at a high level, like how technical products uh, are built and how to how to build them the correct way. And so that doesn't necessarily mean knowing how to build them, but it means you know being fluent enough in how things are built and the decisions that are made uh, to be a partner on those decisions or to be thoughtful on the strategy of how you go about. Um, you know, building products. And so for me, I wasn't, I wasn't technical. And so I wasn't, uh, you know, I'm not an engineer. And so I had to very quickly learn how to set up, you know, the engineering teams that I would work with at various companies to be uh, as successful as possible. And so that meant uh, whether it was, uh, you know, growth initiatives and trying to help, you know, shift or, or shape the product towards where, you know, we had strong product market fit uh, and helping, you know, illuminate ways that we could double down and continue to invest in that, uh, whether it was BD deals to, you know, aggregate demand or supply, you know, for a marketplace or aggregate new users and, and you know, help, help get wide distribution for the tools that we were building there's a lot of different ways you can do this but um, I think you know the one one helpful framing can be essentially like how can you you know as someone who's non-technical how can you increase the leverage um, and increase the impact uh, of all the technical work that's going on towards building a product at a startup and so I think you know if you can think in those terms uh, you can actually be really really impactful uh, and the last thing I would say is that you know, building organizations and building teams and starting to think about how organizations work and how to set up organizations for success and how to resource against opportunities and problems and make bets correctly is a is a very valuable but very hard skill to build. And so there's ways to do that on very small levels earlier and early in your career. And, you know, I started working on that 10, 12 years ago. Uh, and now that's essentially what I do full time uh, as a COO is, is think about those things. And 
So I would say that, uh, you know, even the best, most technical, uh, you know, the, the organizations have the most incredible engineering talent. Um, you still need an unbelievable org structure. You still need a great um, strategy. You still need to resource really well against opportunities. You still need to think about, uh, you know, how much do we do we, you know, sort of try to sure up problems that we have versus chasing, uh, you know, upside of future things that we want to bet on. You still need to think in these terms and, and be able to make decisions in those terms. And that's actually what ends up setting up really great technical engineering teams for success. And so that partnership uh, and understanding those dynamics uh, is really, really powerful. And I think, um, you know, the earlier in your career, if you are going to be non-technical, the earlier in your career, you can figure out how to do that, whether it's on growth, whether it's as a PM, whether it's thinking through uh, people ops or finance or accounting or other other parts of the business, uh, great startups need all these things. And so I think if you can find ways to do that uh, in those roles, it can be really, really powerful. Okay, that's super interesting. And can we just dig in a little bit to that? Because you mentioned that these skills are really, really valuable yet they're a little bit soft and maybe sometimes strategic because it's a lot of decision making, right? So can you just dig into how you went about kind of cultivating these skills that maybe aren't as rigid as something as like a technical skill? Sure. Yeah. So I think one one skill, one sort of meta skill that I think very few people talk about, but is actually unbelievably important is learning how to get things done. And it maybe it sounds maybe trivial or sounds kind of silly, but I think there's a very specific skill set you can build uh, around how to get things done within organizations and within teams. And there's a lot of components of this, I and mean, we could spend an hour talking about just this, but learning the ways in which even especially actually from a position of less power. So when, when you're an intern somewhere or when you're first year out of your career, that's actually the best opportunity to start building skills and building chops on how to get things done within organizations. Because if you're an intern and you're able to actually, you know, you, you have a, a good idea or a, an opportunity that you want to pursue and you're very confident in it, if you are capable of, of moving the organization and getting resources in order to accomplish something, in order to achieve something towards that end, that's actually really, really hard to do from a position, you know, without a lot of power. But it's actually incredibly valuable because you start to learn this skill of, you know, how do I, you know, how do I motivate people? How do I, how do I take something, an idea that I have uh, and how do I actually get other people bought into that? And that's really the the sort of overarching idea. But then when you start breaking that down, there's components like how do I communicate this really, really clearly? Uh, how do I share, you know, my conviction, both from a sort of like logical, cognitive, hey, this is the reasons why this will work, but also from an emotional perspective to show that, hey, I'm actually emotionally invested and bought in and really excited about this idea and I want to get you on that same level you know how do you think about structuring the asks how do you think about resourcing against that how you know you don't want to ask for too many resources but you also don't want to ask for too little how do you think about defining success for these projects how do you think about saying hey this is this is what it will look like for us to deliver this win and here's the impact it's going to have on the organization and here's how we're judging ourselves for this project and as an intern it might be something as small as hey we want to you know we want to test this content marketing idea where we interview three users and we put them up on YouTube and we promote them and we see if this can you know, help people understand the use cases for our product. I'm just making up ideas, but you know, it could be something really small like that, but those types of skills are actually really, really valuable to build. And so I think at a meta level, building the skill of how to get things done is one of the most valuable things you can do early on in your career. And then you start to build on that because you know, ideally over the course of your career, you're getting better at making decisions, your intuition is improving, you're getting better at sort of figuring out what data and what inputs you need to make a good decision. And then very importantly, those inputs are shrinking over time. So over time, you actually need less and less data to make a really good decision and be confident in that decision. So you can make decisions more quickly. You can make decisions with less resources uh, and you can be more confident in the decisions you're making. And so if you pair that with the ability to know how to get things done, that's how you can actually have a really big impact on a company and really change the way that a company is run or, or, or change the trajectory of a company because of your work. Yeah, super interesting. Basically, that's your job description, right? Just getting things done. So I think it'd be helpful to maybe put some context or an example around these ideas that see them to me kind of sort of like a checklist. You're looking through all these ideas in order to kind of portray a vision that you have. So if there's any examples where you kind of went through this process, I think that'd be really helpful. One of the early stories that I think of w when you asked that question was actually in Nairobi, where we were working on sort of a TechCrunch disrupt type event called Pivot 25. And we were basically bringing together sort of we had, uh, uh, bringing together 25 startups 
to basically pitch in various categories. And we're doing kind of a big event conference um, that had a bunch of components, but one of them was um, basically having these startups pitch and then having a winner in each category and they would win funding from investors. And we were about two months or a month and a half out from the event. We were sort of struggling with sponsorships and, you know, figuring out how we were going to work with a lot of the big companies in Nairobi. And we knew that it was it was it should be a great opportunity to make a bunch of money on sponsorships and cover a lot of the cost of the event. But we weren't doing a good job actually closing them and managing the relationships after we did close them. And so I just stepped in and I think I was, I don't know, 18 or 19 at the time. I don't know exactly how old I was. But I just jumped in and just started basically like taking that over. And I basically said, hey, this isn't that, that difficult. I think I can do this actually quite well. Um, basically, we just need to communicate really well with them, show them what the upside is, you know, get them closed. And then we need to keep them really happy until the event. And then when the event comes, we need to have a really clean setup for them to come in and, and you know, have a great experience, set up a booth, staff it with great people, have a great spot, uh, you know, have clear expectations of what they're actually getting, et cetera. And so I just kind of jumped in and, you know, started started executing on that. And I think at first I was like just, you know, I just was helping on kind of on the side with a few of the relationships and that slowly grew and grew and grew over time. And so I think that's kind of, you know, if you can find yourself in an organization that will continually increase your responsibility based on your ability to get things done, that's kind of the best case scenario. And so that's something Eric was really big on and something that he taught me was basically you want to constantly be increasing, uh, you know, the, the work that you're putting on someone's plate if they're demonstrating, you know, an ability to you know have success with what you're giving them and an aptitude for more. And so if you're, you know, if you see that in someone, you want to keep giving them more and more and more. And so that's what happened. And, and you know, if you're in an organization like that, it's a huge asset. And if you're not, you should try to, try to figure out how to get into a team like that. Uh, because if you do have, you know, ambition and you really want to take on more responsibility, that's the best way to do it is to have a boss who is going to continually push you and continue to, you know, add more to your plate. Uh, as you prove that you can take it on. Um, and it's actually totally okay if you get to a breaking point because you know that's your boss is gonna know that you know they're they're th- they're already thinking in those terms. And it's totally okay if you get to the breaking point and you kind of pull back for a little bit. Uh, you think about how you can work better together, rethink the strategy, whatever it might be. Uh, and then you can start to take on more and more again. And so I think that is a very, very healthy dynamic um, in good managerial relationships. Um, and that's definitely what I experienced there. What do you think are the biggest obstacles that prevent people from getting stuff done? I think that one would definitely be, one's definitely communication. So I think this is something that plagues a lot of startups, but I think also just a lot of companies. And it's probably particularly evident in early stage companies with, you know, founders or executive teams that haven't figured out um, like communication dynamics. But I think if there's not clear communication and there's not transparency around why you're doing what you're doing uh, or even what you're doing, that can create, you know, a lot of friction to any sort of progress because there's not clear alignment on what success looks like. There's not even maybe clear alignment on what you're supposed to be doing. And so all the small components of getting things done that sort of operate within that world actually have this sort of like unneeded friction of not really knowing, you know, how how success is defined or um, what good looks like for those projects. And so I think communication and that that's like meta level communication. I think you could also break it down to even communication in between teams. And so something that we do at Omni is where there's certain certain things like, uh, you know, if there's a task for engineering, there's a very specific format that that task has to exist in. And there's specific owners that own, you know, ensuring the task is in that format. And there's exceptions to this, but for the most part, you know, engineering, you know, we, we don't want engineering interacting with tasks or asks that are not in that format because it's inefficient. They have to then go do information gathering. They have to go talk to a bunch of people to try to understand what the task is. And so you don't want a culture where, you know, people are just slacking engineers to give a very startup specific example, asking them to get things done. uh, And they're just constantly fielding asks all day. This is an extreme version of this. Um, And you don't want a culture where that, that is the way things get done. Um, you also don't want a culture where engineers never talk to anyone else. You want to have you know, a lot of collaboration. But uh, an example of how communication can sort of lubricate getting things done faster is, uh, you know, is, is that you can you can provide a very clear, structured communication format for you know how an engineering team sort of engages and executes on tasks, and you can make sure that format is the most efficient way for them to collect all the information they need, define what the role, what the sort of job is to be done, and then what success looks like. And so um, I think that's kind of a micro example of of how communication can hurt it, can hurt getting things done. And then maybe the other large component I think is is kind of a lack of alignment or a lack of 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 sort of getting the other person bought in on what's 
why this is important. So I was actually talking to someone on my team about this. Um, we were talking about a dynamic where they were sort of frustrated that they weren't able to make as much progress when they were collaborating uh, with someone as they wanted to. And I was kind of listening to the situation and listening to some of the conversations that had happened and, you know, listening to them reflect on it. And I started to realize that they hadn't they hadn't really taken the time to explain why this was going to be a win for both of them and why this was a big deal for Omni. And so what had happened is they had sort of jumped straight into the tactical and said, hey, this is what we need to get done together. Here's how we need to do it. Here's the work that we need to do. Um, you know, let's let's go. Let's let's here's the timeline. You know, can we can we start on this tomorrow? And they hadn't paused to say, hey, I'm really excited about this project. Here's why I think it's going to be a huge win. Here's why I think you're the best person to help me on it. Um, and can we work on this together? And when you frame it like that, all of a sudden you, you feel like you have a partner uh, sort of on the task or on the opportunity. Uh, and it's actually much more fun and much more engaging and motivating. And you can do much better work, you know, driving towards, you know, some goal. And so I think um, that's maybe the other big thing is, is sort of alignment and getting buy-in uh, on why things are important because humans want, uh, you know, we want, we want a sense of worth of the work that we're doing. We want to know why it's valuable. We want to feel like we're contributing to something with every hour, or every day of hard work. And without that, um, you know, I think that the chance of, of, of truly world-class output is, is very, very low. Totally. So there's a story of a CEO. I can't remember what company it was now, but he made basically an edict that if anybody sent any sort of communication without telling somebody why they should do something, that person would be automatically fired. So I'm going to have to find that. But I think it's a testament to that kind of why we all want to know why we're doing something so that we can kind of have that vision like you're talking about. So you mentioned Omni in there. We haven't talked about that yet. So can you just kind of give the Omni pitch? Yeah, totally. So, you know, I believe in a future and we at Omni believe in a future where we can all access uh, more things, more experiences, more opportunities um, through shared ownership of, of goods. And so what I mean by that is that, you know, right now, uh, if you need, uh, you know, an item, we sort of have this like purchase first mentality where, um, you know, if you need something, you go on Amazon Prime now uh, or you go to Amazon or whatever and you just you kind of buy it, even if you're only going to use it a few times a year. Um, and, it, and it turns out it's actually really difficult, even though it seems simple, it's really difficult to be able to access, you know, items that you don't use often for a day or a week or a month when you need it without having to own it. And so our vision is for, um, you know, a world where in every city in the world where you can just access the things that you need when you need them. So similar to what Airbnb has done for housing, what Uber has done for transportation, uh, you know, we want to do for everything else. And so um, right now uh, in San Francisco, New York, uh, L.A. and Portland, uh, if you live in those cities, you can open up the Omni app uh, and you can find items that are available to rent by the day, week uh, or month in those cities. And so you can uh, find bikes to go for bike rides. You can find air mattresses for when you have company visiting, drones, drills, uh, you know, power tools and everything in between. Anything that you could need sort of for a short amount of time, uh, you can find and rent those items. And so um, we believe in this future where we can all sort of, you know, the things that we own can be these really high quality things that we really want to own and we really want to have in our homes. But the things that we don't use often, we don't we don't need to feel the uh, the sort of burden of ownership for. And so the sort of um, you know shared ownership or shared consumption of these items is the future uh, that we believe in and that and that we're building. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's kind of this access first paradigm versus buy first. So are there any items that you've found that maybe surprised you where people really have a need to rent these? Yeah, I think the the thing that I would say is surprising, uh, we can talk about specific items as well, but I think, you know, when people first think of this idea, and even when I first thought of this idea, uh, when, I, when, I, when Tom, the CEO, had shared it with me, uh, I guess, maybe four and a half years ago, uh, you know, I, I initially thought of a very small set of items, you know, things that were very, very obvious, um, you know, like a power drill is like the classic example of something that, you know, you use a couple times a year, you probably don't need to own it, but there's just too much friction to like renting it when you need it. And so everyone basically owns a drill. And that that's an obvious one. But I think what's been most surprising is just how many items fit this category. Um, you know, there's very few things that we actually use on like a weekly or even monthly basis. There's a lot of things that we own that we only use a few times a year. And that's because the friction to accessing these items has just been too high. Um, or like in economics terms, it's like the transaction cost. It's just it's too costly, either from time or money or effort. 
for us to rent these items right now. It's just too difficult. And so uh, one way to frame what Omni is doing is we're trying to reduce the transaction costs uh, for participating in a network like this. And so we want to make it really, really simple to just go, you know, rent a, you know, if you have your, if your parents are coming to town and you need an air, air mattress, just go rent an air mattress and walk down the street and pick it up, uh, you know, from a store that can rent you that air mattress. Or if you're hosting a dinner party and you need a couple extra chairs or an extra table or um, some amazing diningware, you know, diningware sets or uh, or other gear for the party, you can just go pick that up really, really easily uh, and have that for an incredible experience with your friends and then return it when you're done. And so, um, you know, I think the the biggest surprise for me has just been the breadth of items um, that that fall into this category, and then the interest from people uh, who, you know, we view this as like a very like a multi-decade trend that's like building. You know, you've seen this with Marie Kondo. And you know, people people are starting to want to own less things, but there's not really an alternative. And so, um, you know, I think the biggest surprise for me has just been how many people are already really excited about this and really believe in this future um, and really want to live, you know, sort of in the world that we're creating. Um, and that's, you know, maybe the most exciting thing when you're building a product or building a company is to have those people that are just kind of obsessed with the future that you believe in and and really, you know, using the product and sort of, you know, rallying for you, um, you know, to, to succeed in building that future. So tell us about kind of your strategies for reducing those transaction costs. Good question. So um, I think there's a, there's sort of three main transaction costs in, right now. If people think about, you know, if you were if you live in a city that Omni doesn't exist and you think about, OK, I want to go rent, you know, even something simple like a power drill, um, much less something much more complex like a drone or a camera. Um, I think there's three main categories of costs that people think about. Um, you know, the first is obviously financial. So, you know, is this going to be really expensive? Um, you know, a lot of the like rental companies right now are sort of, uh, you know, they charge like, you know, half of what the item costs to buy to rent it for a week. And so, you know, clearly the economics are not in your favor there. And so I think there's, you know, the first big bucket is like, is this, you know, really expensive? And so what Omni wants to do um, is provide, you know, you know, we, we have a sort of a model for pricing that's based on MSRP and a percentage of that. Um, but you know, for most items that you use a few times a year, it's going to be far cheaper over the course of the lifetime of that item to rent it from Omni uh, than to buy it. The second one uh, is risk. So you know, if you are, let's say, you you know wanted to use, there's a couple of small marketplaces where you can like meet up with someone. And you can meet up in a park and you can exchange cash and rent, you know, someone's bike or a drill or whatever. Um, and I think that in that case, there's actually a lot like one of the transaction costs and sort of especially cognitively is just the risk of like, you know, is this person actually going to show up? Uh, you know, is it going to work like they said it would work? Uh, you know, is it going to, um, you know, be like safe and, and, and sort of inspected and whatever uh, when I when I rent it? And uh, is this person actually trustworthy? And so what we do is we actually partner with local retail uh, local retail companies in these markets uh, that actually offer verified items available for rent. And so you can trust that the item you're getting is really high quality, that a professional has inspected it, that it's gonna work, uh, it's a trustworthy owner on the other end. Um, and so we reduce that risk, uh, you know, so you don't have to worry about sort of who you're dealing with on the other side of the transaction. And then finally is time. And so I think, you know, if especially in the example of meeting up with someone else, or if you have to drive 45 minutes to go find this place, like, you know, we don't, none of us want to do that now, especially in the world we live in today. And so, um, you know, Omni's vision is through these retail partnerships is that, you know, in these major cities and the cities we're in right now, certainly in New York and LA and San Francisco and Portland, um, you know, most of the things that you could want to rent are available within a few blocks of where you, where you live if, if you live in these cities and so uh you know we envision a world where uh anything you could want to access you know you can just walk uh, or have a very short drive or public transit uh to pick it up and so it's very very convenient uh you know it's less than 10 minutes to get there and get back um and that's kind of you know the world that we that we believe in and so um you know i think the, the transaction costs that we're trying to reduce uh are the actual you know financial costs the risk uh, and then the time uh, that's involved in that. And then I think the more meta one and the one that we're sort of long-term obsessed with is just there's actually a, a high cost to ownership. And so, you know, we we actually think that there's, you know, we've sort of accepted this cost of ownership uh, as humans where we throw things in our closets and our attics and our garage, they sit there, we use them a couple times a year. Um, and, you know, that actually takes up space in our home. It takes up space that we can't use for a living. It costs money to buy those things. Um, but we just sort of accept that as normal. And I think over the, the coming years, we're going to feel like that's a little uh, a little bit unnecessary and that, you know, using a huge percentage of our living space just to store things um, is sort of an unnecessary uh, thing that we've adapted to because it's been really hard to access these things. But uh, in this future where access is really fluid and really frictionless, uh, I think that we'll actually feel like there is a cost uh, 
to owning these things outside of just the financial cost of buying them. Uh, and that'll actually make make access even more attractive. So tell us about the conversations that you're having with these retail partners. Are they in favor of that because they get more usage out of their inventory? And they're, are they actually getting, at the end of the day, kind of a higher lifetime value than if they were to just sell something? Absolutely. So they're they're definitely getting uh, a higher LTV on an item basis, um, but through renting it out uh, rather than selling it. But I think actually more important than that, uh, and the vision that I have for this is that local retail uh, is struggling right now. And it's you know if you talk to these retail owners, I've talked to hundreds of them in the past ninety days. If you talk to them, you know it's 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 hard for them right now. It's really hard to make it as a local retailer, even in a major market. And part of what's contributing to that is that you know, most of them are competing uh, on the same playing field by the same rules and on the same vectors as Amazon. And so if you're if you're tasked with saying, hey, I need to get, you know, an item, whatever item, um, you know, most consumers are making decisions based on the quality of the item, the selection of, you know, various items that, that might fit that category or fit that need, and then the cost. And then for some, also the speed. And so there's really those four, you know, things that we're making decisions on. And, you know, at least on two out of the four and probably on three out of the four, it's really hard for local retail to compete um, because you're, they're never going to have the selection of Amazon. Uh, they're probably not going to be able to beat Amazon on price uh, and, you know, and, and cover their and make the margins they need to cover their operating expenses. Uh, they're not going to you know, be able to have, in some cases, as high quality items as Amazon because they can't stock as many things. Um, and, you know, retail, some retailers are doing a fantastic job differentiating themselves through a really great in-store experience or unique inventory, exclusive inventory, these types of things. But I actually think of this, uh, of, of Omni and this sort of wave as a way to compete on a totally different playing field because uh, you know we've done a lot of surveys and, and talked to a lot of users and actually there's there's, there's like a lot of people actually prefer being able to access something uh, when they need it instead of purchasing it but it doesn't it's not actually an alternative that we have in our heads right now and so I think for for these retail partners, it's an opportunity for them to compete uh, on a totally different playing field by totally different rules than they're competing right now and leverage their most valuable asset, which is their proximity to consumers. The fact that they already exist in these neighborhoods, you know, with hundreds of thousands or millions uh, of consumers that already live there. And so what, what we believe is that we can allow them to take that asset, their proximity to these to, to consumers and turn it and sort of leverage that and leverage it to the fullest to say, hey, we are now the, the closest, most convenient way for you to access an item for an hour or a day or a week whenever you need it. Um, and they're, they really can can almost you know own that entire experience without a lot of competition, at least for the time being. And so I actually you know believe this is a way to see a huge resurgence of retail uh, and help them sort of capture the the incredible value they create by already being in these communities by offering some offering something that's differentiated uh, and something that that consumers really want. Yeah, really interesting perspective. So tell us about kind of the biggest pushbacks that you've gotten from Omni because you, you've mentioned kind of Airbnb and Uber and the biggest pushback there was that basically you're getting in a random person's car, you're sleeping in a random person's house, but with Omni it's kind of these reputable retailers. So what's kind of the biggest pushback that you've gotten? Yeah, so I'm, I'm very thankful that, um, you know, we don't have... In Uber and Airbnb's case, you know, there's a you're you're physically putting yourself into either a home uh, or into a car, um, which is, you know, in some ways, it's like a little bit of a hurdle to get over psychologically, especially when these brands were up and coming. And, you know, Airbnb obviously now is a lot of, you know, full like complete houses or, um, you know, complete condos. But early on, it was like sharing a bedroom or sleeping on a couch. And I did that was early user of Airbnb. And uh, I was, you know, it was a kind of a thing to get over uh, the first couple times you did it. And so I'm certainly thankful that we don't have that type of sort of cognitive, um, you know, sort of barrier for people to jump over because, um, you know, you're not you're not actually putting your body into this vehicle or with someone else or uh, sleeping in someone's home. So I think the biggest, you know, the, the the hurdle for us is I think many people who want, uh, or we know this actually quantitatively, many people that want 
to be able to access things instead of own things. They want to own less. Uh, they want to invest in experiences uh, over things. Um, those people actually don't don't know always that this is an alternative. And so for us, um, you know, the the hurdle is less of a you know specific risk that people feel in their head about engaging with the marketplace, and much more about awareness to say, hey, you know, this is a lifestyle that you want to live. You want to own less things. You want to spend more of your money on experiences. Uh, you want to have really high quality things when you need them, but not have to have the burden of ownership. Uh, there is now an alternative uh, for you to live that lifestyle and to sort of you know accelerate this future that you want to see. And so I would say that's the biggest hurdle for us right now uh, is just really driving a lot more awareness awareness that, that this is really, uh, you know, an option for people like the future is here um, in these cities and hopefully many more cities soon. And so, um, you know, I think that's that's the, the thing that a lot of our team is focused on and figuring out, you know, how can we position that, uh, you know, and, and sort of broaden that reach as much as possible. So is that one of the core values of Omni? Like everybody there on the team is a minimalist? I wouldn't say a minimalist um, because I think, you know, we don't, I don't believe that like ownership, I, I, I have well, several people that are minimalist on the team for sure. And I have a ton of respect. Um, I was actually just on the minimalist podcast. So I have a lot of respect uh, for Josh and those guys, but um, I think it's not so much about minimalism, but and more about intentional ownership. So, um, you know, I, I, we believe in a future, not where people don't own anything or where everyone's necessarily, you know, obsessed with like figuring out how to, you know, get rid of most of the things they own. Though I think that can be a really valuable exercise for a lot of people and a really valuable lifestyle. Um, but it's more about the things that you do own should be things that you need to own and you want to own. And so, you know, if I buy something, I should buy something that's high quality that I'm going to enjoy using uh, and that I that I need and want to own because I'm going to use it frequently or because it's something that I love. Um, you know, I shouldn't buy a power drill because I know that three times a year I'm going to need a power drill and just throw it in the closet and um, or in the garage or the attic and, uh, you know, kind of keep it there for the off chance that I need it. Um, and I think that that is the the version of ownership that we see really going away um, and then, you know, hopefully freeing up capital capital and, and finances for, for families and for individuals to be able to invest, you know, more in experiences or more in owning higher quality things for the things that they do need to own. And so I see it actually as sort of an economic shift, um, you know, in how dollars are spent, um, you know, uh, maybe uh, uh, certainly less, th less things being owned, but um, really importantly, like higher quality things being owned and ownership becomes something that's you know, perhaps something that we look forward to and we're excited about because of the things that we really want to own intentionally uh, versus something that becomes, you know, that we don't have an alternative for. I like that, the intentional ownership. So I want to drill down on a little bit more of kind of what you do day to day. And I was reading one of your blog posts and you mentioned that you were taking on an intern. And I think the first thing, kind of the first bullet point for that job description is this will be the hardest internship you'll ever have. So tell us a little bit about that guarantee. Yeah, that's a good one. So first of all, I'm a huge believer in internships. I don't know how many years I've done this in a row, but I do this every summer and I, I usually publish the post like sometime in the winter and I basically just, I publish a medium post that basically says I'm hiring an intern and uh, I say a few things about the internship and just basically say, email me, you know, if you're, if you're interested and tell me why you're the one. And this summer, the so every every year I get kind of hundreds of emails and applications, and um, it's always amazing to see the people that apply. And I think every summer I, I do say that, that that's always what I open with, which is that it's going to be the hardest internship you've ever had. And the reason why is because a the quality of candidates is is unbelievably high. So every year, um, you know, the intern that's worked with me for the summer has been just unbelievable. Um, you know, people that you you're excited to hire full time, you're giving them tons of responsibility. Um, and so because of that, they're really treated like uh, like a normal team member, they're not treated like an intern. And so there's no checklist of things to accomplish. There's no like, hey, spend four weeks building this PowerPoint presentation on like our competitors that you're going to present to the exec team. And at the end of the summer, there's none of these sort of like, um, you know, typical like intern tasks. Um, the way I structure the internship is you come in, you spend about a week or two kind of gathering context on the business on what's going well, what's not going well, what are the opportunities, what are the problems. You figure out where you're sort of the intersection of like what you're really good at, what you're excited about, and what's going to stretch you and grow you. You figure out the intersection of those three things, and then we work together and we partner on, uh, you know, collaborating with different people on the team uh, to work against those. And so it could be product, it could be growth, it could be, um, you know, operations, it could be marketing, it could be all these different parts of the business. Um, 
And I think, you know, because of that, it's very, very demanding. And the rest of the team sort of treats you like just a normal team member. And so the expectations are really high. Um, and so it is really, really hard. But it also accelerates your rate of learning, uh, I think, faster than maybe any other internship you could have, um, because you're immediately working with uh, executives, with amazing PMs, amazing engineers, amazing operations people, amazing growth people. Um, and you're working sort of as a peer with them from day one, uh, which is an experience that you almost never have as an intern. Um, and I think that that is maybe the fastest way to accelerate your rate of learning, especially over a compressed time frame, like 12 or 14 weeks. Um, and so that's why, why I always lead with that on the post. So this might be kind of hard to take yourself back, but you mentioned how these interns, when they first come in, they have about a week or two where they're just gathering context. So let's pretend that you weren't in your current position and you were that incoming intern. What would you do in those first one to two weeks to give yourself the best chance of success? So I, the thing that I that I tell them, the thing that I would do, um, there's two things. So the first is ask a ton of questions and take a bunch of notes. So you know, I think a lot of people, especially when you're in, in a new social environment, whether it's a new team or a new friend group or whatever, it's sometimes hard to like it, it sort of overcome the the inertia to just kind of be quiet and just listen and just kind of you know not put yourself out there and, and be a, kind of like a fly on the wall. But you can actually learn much more quickly and you can gather context much more quickly if you will ask a bunch of questions. And so um, I tell them like every single person you talk to, I set up a bunch of like intro coffee meetings with most people on the team for them. And I say, you should like prepare like a bunch of questions, like at least five, probably 10, 15 questions to ask every single person that you're meeting with in the first week. And they can be crazy questions. They can be like totally benign questions um, but it should be things about uh, their their role what they're working on what they're excited about um, what's dragging them like what's what's like a, sort of emotionally draining for them right now what are they worried about what are they excited about uh, what are opportunities are they really excited about at Omni and I basically tell them just ask a ton of questions and take a ton of notes and it may feel uncomfortable and it may feel odd and some of them might fall flat or whatever but over the course of like 10 or 15 conversations where you do that you're going to gather an unbelievable amount of context about where omni is from a bunch of different vantage points from really smart people and so you're going to have this you're going to be able to basically sort of take all that you know sort of filter it all and then compress it into a really accurate viewpoint about you know a where omni's at where we're going and then where you can add value against that. And so that's the first piece is just ask a ton of questions and take a ton of notes. And then the second piece is put yourself out there and take risks really early. And so, uh, you know, especially these interns that, that we are uh, the intern that we hire every year. And um, I think this is true for a lot of people. Um, very quickly, you start to actually get ideas for things that, you know, you think might work or, or solutions to problems or things that maybe other people haven't thought of. And as a new person in sort of joining an organization, you actually have a really valuable vantage point to everyone else because you're not jaded by the same things they're jaded by. You don't have the same organizational biases. Um, you might be able to think outside certain boxes that they you know, regularly feel constrained in. And so your perspective can actually be really valuable. And the, the faster you can get to the point where in a meeting or in a Slack DM afterwards or in an email, you can say, hey, I, I was thinking about this thing that you said and this problem that you mentioned. Have we thought about doing X, Y, and Z? The faster you can put yourself out there, the faster you're going to start getting reps at getting feedback on, hey, this is this is either a really great idea or this wasn't a good idea and here's why, and start to figure out, you know, what are what are the actual solutions to problems or what are the actual ways to capitalize on opportunities, and that's going to help you uh, just get that much better and move that much more quickly at actually creating value. And so, um, the faster that you can find ways to put yourself out there and start actually sharing ideas or sharing thoughts that you have, um, the better because you're going to basically, you know, sort of compress the feedback loop. So you can get better more quickly uh, and then actually create value uh, much more quickly than if you just waited three, four or five weeks before you started actually sort of, uh, you know, sort of engaging uh, as a peer on a lot of these opportunities. I like that a lot. So you mentioned getting a lot of reps. How important is it for management to make sure that it fosters this open community where anybody can share ideas? And then how do you actually do that? How do you go about creating that open system? So I'll preface this by saying it's really, really hard. So, and, and it's hard for, I think there's a couple of reasons, but the, the, the main reason that it's hard is because generally uh, the, the management team or the leadership team uh, is quite experienced and has quite strong conviction on the way that, uh, that something should go or the way that we should solve problems or the way that we should work. 
And there's a balance to how strong of a conviction you want them to have uh, versus, you know, sort of how willing they are to sort of be willing to be wrong about that or change direction. And so I think the best leaders are ones who have really strong conviction, share that really strong conviction, but are willing to be challenged and importantly, willing to engage respectfully in any sort of challenge that comes up uh, and hear it out. And then if they disagree or if they do feel strongly even afterwards, like, hey, I still feel like you know, you're wrong and this is the right way to go, they're willing to take the time to explain why. And so I think that's like the best category of leaders. Um, in startups, there's a lot of really stressful periods and periods where you're trying to compress an incredible amount of work into a very small time frame. And I think in these periods, it's, it's actually specifically very, very difficult to foster that culture because you have executives who are pushing their teams really, really hard, who are trying to be maniacal about focus and create structure around them to help them be efficient and be able to hit whatever goals are ahead of them. And so taking the time to sort of regularly, uh, you know, be challenged and, uh, you know, explore other ideas or alternatives can be taxing in those moments. And so um, I think, you know, really great leaders find ways to do it. Um, and this is something we're constantly working on at Omni, um, but it's something that's really, really difficult at startups, particularly in sort of like the wartime moments where, um, you know, things are hard and you are, you, your backs are against the wall and you're trying to overcome odds and um you know there's 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 goals that feel impossible and so i think in some ways it's a lot easier maybe once the company's more established and um you know the the sort of sense of urgency maybe is, is backed off a little bit hopefully it never backs off too much but um it might be easier uh, sort of as you get to those stages but early on i think it's really really difficult and it comes down to you know hiring really great leaders who know how to to balance that um, and you know are willing to take the time to have the conversation and change their minds you know if if they're wrong and that's a really important thing that that uh, you know people need to be willing to do and one of the things that I um, to our exec team and I, I believe really deeply is like you know changing your mind is actually a, a really strong signal like that's actually you know, I think actually a really great sign of a leader is is someone who can say because like none of us are right about everything and so you know if you're willing to say hey I think actually I, based on this new input that I have or this new perspective or this new data or whatever um, I actually I changed my mind on this and actually think we should do why I actually view that as a, as a sign of a great leader uh, now they need to do that quickly if they realize they're wrong and they need to do it really just decisively and then you communicate it really well the worst case scenario is that they're sort of like wishy-washy back and forth but if they do it decisively and quickly and if they communicate why they're doing it really well uh, that's actually a really strong sign and so i think if you can build that culture even in the really hard sort of wartime moments of building a startup you can still have some of that culture uh, which i think is really healthy and that helps attract and sort of retain top performers who want to be in that type of environment yeah so a lot of good stuff in there I want to key in on one thing that you said where you're talking about this idea of changing your mind and how that's actually a good thing because you said when you get a new data point and I think that's the key right there when so many people get locked into one viewpoint and then stop searching for new data points because then that would maybe open them up to the risk of being wrong and so just because this is the investing city podcast it's the same thing in investing people get so locked into one stock that they don't keep looking for new data and so i yeah i just wanted to key in on that but we don't want to take up too much of your time so we have two last questions for you so on twitter you mentioned that you really wanted to see somebody talk about somebody they really ex respected and then an issue that they disagreed with them on so i don't know if you have an example ready for me oh that's a good one put me on the spot i like it yeah, someone I uh, I respect a ton and have learned uh, a ton from is Keith Raboy, who's at uh, at Founders Fund now and is an incredible operator. And it's it's actually cool that you that you mentioned this because something I've been thinking a lot about is like I think we've we, as a culture we are moving it seems like to this place where people feel like in order to respect someone you have to um, you know like agree with everything they say, which is kind of a bizarre like that's it's a very bizarre thing to sort of arrive at um, because there's almost no one I can think of that I agree with everything that they believe or that they say. Um, but I, res I, you know, respect a ton of people. And there's actually a lot of people that I disagree with almost everything they say um, that I also respect a lot of. And I think uh, you see this in politics, you can see this in religion, you can see this in a bunch of different places where um, there's there's sort of this like complete lack of respect for people that you disagree with, um, which A, I think is really dangerous, but then also I think is actually like a very sort of small and um, sad worldview uh, to sort of, you know, way to engage with the world because, you know, just because you disagree with someone doesn't mean you, you shouldn't have respect for them or you shouldn't be able to respectfully engage, uh, you know, on topics. And so 
someone that I actually agree with on most things, especially when it comes to operating is, is Keith. Um, I think one thing that we disagree with, uh, that we've never talked about this is I think we have slightly different views on, you know, on, on how to build teams and the importance of like, um, sort of a humility in leadership and in management and in team building. And so, you know, I think this may be something that my mind will change on, uh, you know, as I, as I have more experience and have, have led, you know, more companies like Keith has. But I think for me, something I believe right now, it's something we're really big on in Omni is, is sort of, you know, how do you this kind of getting at your earlier question of like how do you uh, how are you able to sort of quickly identify you know when you, when you're changing your mind on something um, be willing to change your mind uh, and then quickly and decisively communicate that to the team and I think an element of that is sort of this humility to 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 realize like hey I might not be right about everything um, and and having you know humility uh, to be able to admit that um, and to create an environment for your team where they can also engage with that and I think that one way to sort of sort of like attract and, and retain top performers is to create um, some of that environment and so and i don't actually don't know maybe he actually agrees with that that nuance of it but i think that's something that i i feel really strongly about and i think you know, we we spend a lot of time, especially as an exec team, with we we have a coach on retainer that we work with um, that that helps us with a lot of these things, and um, we we sometimes will do like group sessions with coaches where we we help sort of have these conversations, and I think that's something that that I believe is really important, and um, that I I believe has helped us a lot, and something that we're going to continue to invest in um, as you think about like team dynamics and just you know really investing in the way that the team works together and creating that environment you know for for world class work to happen. So just one last question. Being on a high-performing team, I'm sure you have a lot of demands on your time, but are there any personal habits that you do every single day? Yeah, uh, actually several. So every morning I, I every morning I wake up and I get my son um, out of his crib and we make coffee together, pour over coffee in a Chemex. Um, we've done this for about probably 500 days, almost the entire time he's been born, 500 days straight roughly. And we make coffee together. We talk about it. Uh, we make coffee for my wife. And it's something that he really enjoys. I really enjoy. And it's kind of just this moment to like pause and do something slow. Um, and pour over coffee is kind of like a, you know, a little, little bit of a slower process than the alternatives. But, um, you know, we get to kind of talk and hang out and and just kind of, you know, talk about the day and what we're, what we're going to do. And um, he kind of like understands the coffee making process now. He's only like a year and a half, but he kind of like, you know, knows knows the process and like will help me with different things and get the beans. And and it's just become a really cool way for me to set up, kind of kickstart my day with him and just kind of really like, you know, take a second to do something slow and, and just set the pace for the day. Uh, other things are uh, I'm obsessed with sleep. So um, I sleep eight hours every single night. Um, my wife and I both do, and we uh, we both believe really strongly in that. Uh, I think it's the number one thing you can do to uh, increase your performance, to improve your relationships. Um, you know, if at all possible to do that, I think that's like you know maybe one of the biggest things you could do to improve your life. And then, yeah, those are probably the two in terms of things I do every single day. Those are probably the two that are that are incredibly consistent. Well, great. It's been a pleasure having you on, Ryan. Best of luck to Omni. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks again for listening. You can find more information at www.investingcity.org, where you can sign up and subscribe for our email newsletter that goes out every Friday. And you can also follow us on basically every social media platform on the face of the earth. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us an iTunes review as it really helps us out. And with that, have a fantastic day.